You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and welcome to our third episode on the sacraments. Today, we're going to look at our first sacrament, baptism. Father Alexander Wiseman, professor at St. Thomas Aquinas Seminary, is joining us for the next two episodes. First, to look at the traditional rite of baptism, and then to look at the new rite. As you'll see, the traditional form is so much more than simply pouring water and saying a few words of the formula. The Church has filled this ritual with exorcisms, symbolism, and graces for the benefit of the new Christian being baptized. We'd like to say a special thank you to those who graciously shared pictures of their children's and grandchildren's baptisms for use in this episode. It helped to make Father Wiseman's descriptions even more clear. And as we move forward in this series, we're looking for help. If you like these series and want to have more of them, you can help us by leaving a rating or a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. And you can share it with someone who you think would like it or appreciate it, or maybe they just need it. That's the best way to help, because you're helping us with this apostolate to reach as many people as possible with the beauty and the truth of what it means to be a traditional Catholic. Now, let's join Father Wiseman for Episode 3 on the Sacrament Series right now. Father Wiseman, thank you for joining us today on the SSPX Podcast. How are you? Doing pretty well. Thanks, Andrew. How about you? I'm doing fine. Doing fine. We are... uh, in the thick of winter here in the Southwest, which is fantastic. That's why we're we're here. There's supposed to be a snowstorm here. They keep telling us Um, maybe on Sunday, but the time keeps changing. So hopefully it doesn't, it just comes as rain, but we'll, we'll see. Right. Right. Well, we'll see. It's, it's forecasting. It's inexact. And in any case, um, so we're talking about baptism today, father. Um, We're going to be starting uh, with these, with this series, with an episode on the traditional rite of baptism, and then we will compare it with the the new rite of baptism. So we're going to do an, right. our episode today on the traditional form right. of baptism. So where do we start in this discussion, Father? I'd like to begin by giving a little bit of context, and I think this context is probably known to just about everybody that's watching or listening to these podcasts, but I think it is important to lay it out briefly. And Father Robinson, in the episode, the first episode about the sacraments in general, he had spoken about the sacraments in a specific way, and I'm going to try to follow on the way he spoke about them there, which is just the traditional way of speaking about them, but try to give a little bit of context. And what I'm talking about here is maybe God's could be called God's plan of salvation for man. And as soon as we say the word salvation, save, we have to know what it is that we are being saved from. Okay. And that is, we know, sin. And primarily original sin, which is a sin that is given to all men, passed down to all men by generation from our first parents, Adam and Eve, but also our own, we call them actual or personal sins. Uh, So sins that we have committed, we have to be saved from those as well. And one of the things you're going to notice about the sacraments and even any point in the Catholic faith is that if you touch one point of the Catholic faith, you you touch many, many others at the same time. And for that reason, what we're saying here about the sacrament of baptism, it's going to touch many, many doctrines of the church. 
And right away, we touch the doctrine of sin and original sin, the fall of our first parents. And that's, it's crucial to see that if you're going to understand what baptism is and why the church presents the rite of baptism in the way that she does. So obviously we know sin is an offense against God, but it also breaks the friendship that man can have with God. And it violates an order of justice that is outside of man. So man breaks an order that God has established. And this makes him an enemy of God. He's he's declaring himself independent of God and against God. He defines himself as against God. Not your will, right, but my will, or as we hear, uh, Luther's famous, uh, sorry, Lucifer's famous non serviam, I, I will not serve. Right. So man here, he he is going to be miserable as long as he pursues this path, but more importantly, he's also defining himself as outside of what God, of God's kingdom, let's say, outside of of the friendship of God. So he has to be saved from this state. He has to be somehow brought back into the friendship with God. And that's why God the Father sends his son. So our Lord Jesus Christ comes in the flesh and he saves us. And here we have to remind ourselves that how is it that Christ saves us? Well, he saves us by his passion and death on the cross. So this is uh, the word passion, obviously, we refer to the suffering of our Lord, the death of our Lord on the cross. This is going to fulfill the justice of God, which has been violated, so restore the broken order. But it's also going to be a, an infinitely meritorious act that Christ does. And I believe Father Robinson touched on that, all of the merits that Christ has won by his death on the cross. This is going to be how man can be restored to that friendship with God. And so everything is everything is brought back into harmony and order and man can now uh, be on a, a friendship friendly terms with God again. But as Father Robinson pointed out, how is it that man is going to receive this salvation? How is it that man can receive all of the good things that Christ has won for him on the cross. And here, Father Robinson already explained that. I'm not going to go through it again. But I do want to mention a phrase that St. Thomas Aquinas uses, and he uses it so frequently in his treatise on our Lord Jesus Christ, and then again on the treatise on the sacraments that I think it's important to mention. He uses the phrase, first of all, coming into contact with the passion. And okay. he uses, he he has an objection that he keeps bringing up and he says, the passion is an historical event. It's something that's material. So it's something that's stuck in time. And it's something that's done by by a man. A man suffers and dies. That's true to say of Christ. And so he constantly brings up this objection. How is it that man can benefit from the passion spiritually when he doesn't seem to have any access to the passion 
which is over and done with. It's, it's in the past. Right. And he's going to answer his own question, how does man come into contact with the passion of Christ? He says this phrase, quote, through faith and the sacraments of faith. And that's St. Thomas's answer. And I just want to mention there, this is important for baptism, I think, as, as we'll see, that it's through faith, first of all, because man has to believe in Christ, believe that Christ is God and that he can bring him this salvation, but also through the sacraments of faith, which connects with what Father Robinson was pointing out, the sacraments are how we apply the passion to us. They are going to be what gives us, let's say, what puts us at the foot of the cross, ready to receive from the open side of Christ, from the open heart of Christ. And I really think that's the mind of St. Thomas, that the passion is, is like this amazing remedy that can solve all of your problems. But if you don't take the remedy, you can't receive any salvation from it. And for St. Thomas, the primary way that we receive the remedy is through the sacraments. And his whole vision of the sacraments is going to be directed to the highest, the most important, the best sacrament, which is what we call the blessed sacrament, the Holy Eucharist, and therefore the Mass. And we always so hear that is, phrase. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I, I was just going to ask. So this is, we, we always correlate the, I had, I had never considered this before, Father. We always correlate the, the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ with the Holy Eucharist, like you just said. Yes. Uh, and with the Holy Sacrifice of the yes. Mass. Um, but there is a connection between the passion of our Lord and all the rest of the sacraments as well. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. Okay. So every every sacrament is going to receive its power to affect what it has to affect from the passion of Christ. It's going to be some way that we get in touch with Christ and therefore in touch with his passion as well. Okay. And that's a, really a beautiful doctrine, I think, that we have to remember and that the, the church has at her at at heart when she she builds the rites of the sacraments, which we'll, we'll see with baptism specifically. But okay. you should see that in the other episodes about the sacraments. But for St. Thomas, everything's leading up to the Eucharist, the, the ultimate sacrament, which is, as we know, Christ himself. So where does baptism fall in this whole progress? Well, it's the beginning. It's, we call it the door of the sacraments. It's the first sacrament that anybody has to receive if they want to receive any of the other sacraments. And specifically, we have a lot of uh, teaching in scripture about baptism, especially a lot of beautiful uh, sentences and thoughts of St. Paul, especially. And one of the things he teaches us is that by baptism, we are, and he uses this phrase, incorporated, we are made part of the body of Christ. So man becomes a part of Christ and he becomes the, the, the beneficiary of all of Christ's treasures. And that's going to be primarily the, the, the effect of baptism to bring man into this uh, union with Christ that is the union of the mystical body. And it's, it's such a profound union that all of the graces which Christ uh, has won, all of the merits which Christ has won, they are now available to that soul. He can now receive from them just in the same way that the body receives, all the parts of the body receive the blood. 
right? Through mm-hmm. the blood goes everywhere. Um, well, that's a little bit that that metaphor of the mystical body. We receive everything from our head, which is Christ. But how do we become a part of this body? Well, it's going to be through baptism. And so really, baptism makes a man capable, makes a man enter into this intimate communication with Christ. And it's going to restore, therefore, all of the order that God had intended and restore this friendship of man with God. That's a kind of very high level view of what baptism is doing. And I want to emphasize one other aspect that's very beautiful that is also scriptural. And that is that baptism is called a new birth. So Christ will say to Nicodemus, unless a man be born again, born again. So that is to say, there's going to be some kind of rebirth here. And we're going to see that in the symbolism of baptism, but also what's going on there. Well, when you're born, you receive who you are, you receive your nature. We were born of our parents and we receive our fallen human nature. We are, let's say, under Adam, who is our head, our father. By baptism, we are going to be reborn and we receive a new nature, a spiritual nature, which is this divine, this share in the divine nature that makes us like our Lord Jesus Christ, so that he is now our new head. He is our spiritual head from whom then we receive. So all of this is kind of like the the background. This is basically right from scripture about what baptism is doing. Okay. And one other aspect there that we should mention is that because now by baptism we are made part of Christ, we are now able to worship God, to adore God, the way Christ does. And so when Christ says the Father is looking for men to adore him in spirit and in truth, adorers, worshipers in spirit and truth, baptism makes all of that possible. Without baptism, we could not be uh, worshiping God in spirit and truth because we would be separated from Christ. And Christ is the only one who can give to God a worthy worship or adoration. So that's a little bit this kind of overview, context, summary. And now we can maybe dive into a bit more uh, specifically what this sacrament is. Right. And as Father Robinson said uh, last week or the week before, uh, the sacrament could have been anything. God could have, our Lord could have created the sacrament or or instituted the sacrament using any sort of a form or matter. Yes. Um, But what did he choose to do here, Father? Exactly. So he... uh, he chose specific things, and there's there's a there's a reason for them. There's a symbolism, obviously, uh, th- there that is is very important. And so that's the next thing that I want to talk about is what what is the sacrament of baptism itself? Father Robinson had explained that every sacrament is going to have this material side, but also a kind of spiritual side. Sometimes we use the words there borrowed from philosophy, matter and form. So there's going to be a a matter to the sacrament, which is going to be the substance we use and the action that we do. And then there's going to be a form or the more spiritual side, which is the words that we say, that's going to give a very precise meaning to 
the gestures that we do, the substance that we use, and so on. Okay. And it's no different in baptism. In fact, baptism is really the clearest sacrament where we make this distinction. So there's going to be a, a material side to the sacrament. What is that? We say, first of all, that baptism uses water. And that's directly from our Lord Jesus Christ. You have to be reborn of water and the Holy Ghost. There mm -hmm. has to be water involved. And this is very fitting uh, substance to use because it is so easily accessible. And that's another point that we can see is if baptism does all of these things, then it's going to be necessary for salvation. You can't, you won't be able to be saved without baptism in some way. And so water is available everywhere. You can, you can get it um, so easily. So that's why we might say God chose this substance and not a substance that was harder to obtain. But also water is classically representing life. It's always associated with life. And that's what baptism does. It brings us the new life. And so the church uh, following Christ's uh, command there, she always uses water. And more specifically, though, what is going to be the, the matter of this sacrament, the material side, it's going to be the action that is done with the water. And that okay. action is a washing. It's what the, the word baptize signifies. It means a washing. And that's also fitting because there's a cleansing that is going on with baptism. The soul will be made clean again, we might say. Sin is going to be washed away in the waters of baptism. So that symbolism of the water and the washing is really giving us the sense of what the sacrament is doing. We might mention here, too, that the church historically has had different practices as to how that washing takes place. So in the earliest times of the church, the washing was done by an immersion. So the person who was being baptized would be, well, immersed in the water, often step in a, a shallow bath, uh, and then the priest or an assistant would help the person go down under the water and then come back up. And that was actually done three times. So there's a triple immersion. So under the water and then up again and then two more times. And this is, it's just such a, a rich symbolism. And it's what St. Paul kind of speaks about very clearly in his epistles that we are there buried with Christ. The water represents like the tomb into which mm. Christ was was put after he sacrificed himself on the cross. And then the rising up out of the water is Christ coming out of the tomb, rising to his new life. And so that's you get a sense there about how careful the church is to give all of the symbolism that's going to show us what's happening, what's spiritually happening, invisibly happening to the soul. Why was it done three times? Well, that represents, first of all, the Trinity, but also represents the three days that Christ was in the tomb. And so there's a direct connection with the passion of Christ again. The man is being put, as St. Thomas would say, into contact with the passion of Christ through the sign that is given here of the, of the being immersed in the water, submerged in the water. 
There's also another very beautiful aspect of the symbolism there that the water is like um, a womb uh, of the mother. And so you are born again when you come out of the water. That's another aspect of that symbolism. Uh, we obviously today in the Western church, we don't practice the immersion. We use a process rather called, um, technically called infusion, but is simply just a washing. So the priest, uh, everybody has seen this, I think, the priest pours the water over the head of the child or of the one to be baptized. And this is, while we, we lose something of the symbolism of the being buried, we keep all of the symbolism of the washing. And so the soul is cleansed, uh, made entirely clean again. And again, it's done three times to represent uh, the, the the Trinity, but also to represent the, the burial of Christ, Christ being three days in the tomb before rising again. So this is the material side, the action that the priest is going to be doing when he baptizes. As far as the the more formal side, the more spiritual side, that's going to be the words that he says. And for baptism, it's absolutely necessary to say the words with, together with the action that is happening. And so that's why if anybody has witnessed a baptism, the priest says the words while, while he pours the water. And what are those words? They are very simple. The priest uses the name of the person to be baptized. So he says, for example, uh, John. And then he says, it, he says the formula always in Latin, obviously, but I'll give it in English. Uh, John, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And that's the whole, those are the words. And he's going to pour the water at the, at the names of the persons of the Trinity. And we can see there, uh, a few different things in the words themselves. First of all, uh, it's a very it's a very tight we might say form because it represents everything that's going on in that short um, short sentence. First of all, I that's the name the minister who is acting here in the person of Christ. So it's by the power of Christ that this person is baptized. So it's not Christ baptizes you. No, I baptize you. So I baptize, that's the action that's going on, the washing that's happening. You, that's the person being baptized. So this person, I've just addressed him by name. And then I say, in the name, which means, which is in the singular, you notice. So in the singular name, that represents the unity of God. There is one God by whom this baptism, by whose power this baptism happens. But then I name the three persons of the Trinity, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, which represents the trinity of persons, we believe, uh, the fundamental doctrine of our faith, the trinity. So you have really everything packed into that short sentence. And I want to reiterate that the baptism, all the spiritual effects of the baptism, that happens in those moments, in that moment of the pouring of the water and the saying of the words. That's the sacrament itself. Okay. And again, as we said, it's it's such a necessary sacrament that the church says if there's ever a, anybody's in danger of death and they ask for baptism, you, you give them the baptism with just those words and just that action. And that will perform all of the, the wonderful spiritual effects that occur there. 
So that's kind of a summary of the sacrament itself. We're going to talk about the rite that the church uses, surrounds the sacrament with uh, just shortly. But we want to talk a little bit first about the effects of the sacrament before we go to the the surrounding rite. Okay. And this is and and because baptism imparts this this character, makes someone a Catholic, makes someone a, a child of God, it's you can't repeat it. It's it's one of the sacraments that's yes. done once and that's it. Exactly. So everybody is always baptized only once. And okay. I mean, we give various explanations for that. We'll talk about the 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 technical term character there that we'll talk about that in a minute uh but also Christ died once so you can only be assimilated to his death uh in baptism one time you can't okay. be if 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 after that you need to be restored to life there's going to be another sacrament for that that configures you to the passion of Christ in a different way okay and that's the way again it's God's prerogative. That's the way he decided to do it. But we don't, I would say it's important that baptism is not repeated. It's very fitting because this is the entry. This is the way you 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 are going to be a, receiving all of the gifts of Christ. And you are assimilated, we might say, you are made like to Christ, dead, dying on the cross, dead in the tomb, and then rising again to the new life. And that's so that's so clear in in uh, in Saint Paul. I want to I, I want to give an excuse for myself here, and that I'm not trying to insult anybody's intelligence by going through such such basic details. I think this is kind of in the in the minds of 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 Catholics because um, they they've seen a baptism, they've they've heard the church say these these beautiful epistles of Saint Paul. But it is important, I think, for us to come back and reflect on it slowly. Because there's so much symbolism there, you just—it's just stunning when you when you see how many links there are and and how how closely the church obeys Christ's voice in giving us this uh, this sacrament. Absolutely. So I spoke in the kind of in the context there at the beginning about some of the effects of baptism, but I think it's important to go into them in a bit more detail because we're going to see how the church teaches us about those effects in the right that she gives us. And so first of all, I, th I thought I would just mention a little call back to catechism uh, class. The uh, Baltimore Catechism says it very clearly. Um, what does baptism do? Uh, it says it in the answer to the question about what is baptism. It says baptism first cleanses us from original sin. Second, makes us Christians, children of God, and heirs of heaven. So listing four things there. And if we kind of break that down and also maybe supplement that a little bit with what St. Thomas explains in, in a lot more detail, we can say that broadly baptism is going to be doing two things. It's going to be removing things from us, taking them away. And then it's going to be giving us certain things. So what does baptism remove, first of all? Well, it removes all sin, all sin whatsoever. Original sin, first of all, and then any personal sins that have been committed by the person, uh, at any of them whatsoever. And so after one is baptized, that's it. There's, there's no sin left on the person's soul at all. But we might go a step further and say, 
always when we talk about sin, we talk about two things. We talk about the the uh, the stain of sin. That's what we use the Latin word macula, macula culpe, the stain of sin. So when someone sins, he is he is. Um, dirty, we might say, we use that, sure. that expression. That's why, again, baptism is that washing is gone into the mud, into the dirt, right? Um, all those, all those images of, of being unclean, like the lepers in the old Testament, that was, that's an image of sin. It was, it's this leprosy of the soul. So that's one aspect of, of sin. Uh, but another aspect of sin is, the we remember we talked about how the order that God has established was broken, and therefore there has to be some punishment. There has to be something to restore the order of justice, and that uh, often is called the the debt of sin. So the debt of punishment that a man who has sin who has sinned owes to restore the order of justice. So those, uh, St. Thomas will always talk about those two aspects with sin, the stain and then the debt of punishment. And just to maybe connect this in people's minds, um, when you, we talk about purgatory, what, what's the point of purgatory? Well, the point is to remove um, any debt of punishment that's still owed to the soul as a result of sin. And uh, that can be there even though the sin has been forgiven. The stain has been removed, but I still have to restore the order of justice. But when it comes to baptism, that's the beauty of the sacrament, all debt of punishment is completely removed. And so one pers a person who is baptized, after he is baptized, not only does he not have any stain on his soul whatsoever, he's restored to a perfect purity of soul, um, he also owes nothing anymore. Mm -hmm. the, the, the order of justice has been completely restored anew. And that is a direct effect of the passion of Christ and that passion being applied to this soul in the waters of baptism. So that's a, a, just an incredible thing that by this sign, this act of, of going through the sign, this symbol, uh, a man is is entirely restored uh, to this this uh, friendship with God, not not having any stain on his soul, not having any debt to pay back, and that's that's the effect of baptism as far as what baptism removes. Okay. There's also we can talk about the what baptism then gives to the soul because it's not only a question of uh, removing things, but it's a question of giving things as well. And we typically say there, uh, obviously, baptism gives, first of all, sanctifying grace. So that is the grace that makes us a sharer in the divine nature, a participating in the very nature of God. But it also gives us all of the virtues, all of these powers to now act in such a way uh, as befits what we are, that is to say, children of God. So all of the virtues are infused in the soul by baptism. Uh, and then it also gives us two other things that we have to talk a little more specifically about. First of all, it gives us what we call a character, a kind of mark. And I'll explain that in just a moment. And then it gives us a special, a special grace called the sacramental grace, 
a grace that is very particular to the sacrament of baptism. Each sacrament will give this special grace, a, a grace particular to it. So I want to talk very briefly about those two things. Again, I think I'm kind of in in basic uh, catechism land here, but it, sure. it's kind of important to say these things in order to look at the rite of baptism again. Okay. So the word character is a technical term that we've we've borrowed, we've used for a specific thing given by three of the sacraments, not by the others. It comes actually, the word comes from a Greek word, a Greek verb, um, karasein, which means to engrave. So if you imagine a, um, a man with a, a block of wood or something like that and a, a chisel and he's, he's engraving something on the wood, that would be karasein. And so our English word character comes from originally from that Greek root, and therefore it has the idea of a a mark, something that's permanent, something that's um, engraved on us. And mm-hmm. even when the word comes to mean like the character of a person, like his personality, you can see sure. that it it retains that sense of permanence of of something that can't change or go away, or at least not change easily. And right. that, that's why I think this, this word was really um, used for this special effect of, of some of the sacraments. St. Augustine will um, make a kind of analogy and to explain what the sacraments are doing here. And he'll say, well, if you join the military, you are going to receive a special mark that puts you in... Um, a role. So usually we we say now we would say now like you're in a particular unit and mm-hmm. often they 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 wear the they wear the patch of that of that particular division or unit. Um but in St Augustine's time and and before it it wouldn't be uncommon even for a man to have that mark on his uh, very skin, like a kind of tattoo. Sometimes you see that in the in the movies. And we don't have to go into the historical thing, but there the SPQR right. or something like that, right? right. Um, so anyway, but St. Augustine is referencing this mark that's given in some way to make an analogy. And he said, he says, just as a soldier is set aside or deputed to a certain task, by this mark that he has, and that mark signifies that task, so also a man who receives a sacrament like baptism, he is set aside. He's given a kind of mark for a task. And what is that task going to be? Well, it's going to be the worship of God, the proper and true adoration of the Trinity. And so the three sacraments that give this special, that each give a special mark are going to set man aside in a special way to something to do with the worship of God. Now, I'll I'll leave the other two to, for the other specific sacraments, but baptism is going to give a character. It's one of the three that does. And what is it? What is baptism setting us aside for? Well, just the actual worship of God, to participate in all of the rites of the church, all of the sacramental life of the church, which is the prayer of Christ. It is the worship of God. And so by the baptismal character, I am now 
able to receive all of the other good things that the church provides that are part of the worship of God. And so that was why, you know, in the, in the past, you had the catechumens, those who were preparing for baptism, but were not baptized yet. They couldn't come to the second part of the mass, right. the mass of the faithful, as we call it. Why? Because they weren't yet ready. They weren't yet set aside to participate in that worship. And that um, that's exactly what's going on. Once they are baptized, now they can worship God. Now they can be part of the of the mass, for example, of all the prayers of the church and so on. And so that's a little Father, bit um, of a summary there of the character. Would you say that the character gives the, the person the privilege to practice the religion or the duty to practice the religion? I would both? say I would say both. Yeah, both. Okay. So once you are once you are marked, you that's your duty. You have to do that just as a soldier again. But it's also for us it's our great privilege to be um sharing now in this intimate communication that goes on among the three persons of the Trinity, which all the all the liturgy of the church is entering into that life of the Trinity because all the liturgy of the church is merely the expression of the prayer of Christ, right? right? Christ is the one who is praying. And we, as his mystical body, we enter into that prayer with him. And okay. that's why St. Thomas will explain, it's very beautiful, that the character of Christ, what is it? What does it make us like? What does it look like? What is that character a, a character of? And he says, it's a character of Christ, but specifically the priesthood of Christ. So it makes a Christian like Christ as priest. And that's the meaning, the profound meaning behind saying that we are a priestly people. We are a priestly people because we participate in the worship of God. Now, before I get attacked, right? When we say that everybody is a priest, we obviously have to make a crucial distinction sure. and say there's going to be another character, the character of holy orders, that gives a man the ability not only to receive divine things, but to give them as well. And that the regular faithful do not have that character. And therefore, they are only priest in a, a very broad sense, right? Sharing right. in the priesthood of Christ by receiving from his priesthood. But there are going to be other men who are priest, properly speaking, they are the ones who receive the sacrament of holy orders. So right. to be very clear there, obviously, we only call those men priests, really, who are the ones who are able, like Christ, to give those divine things. But nevertheless, when, whenever the faithful come to Mass, they are sharing in that worship that Christ gives to his Father. It's, it's very clear um, in the traditional Mass, especially, that they are there for that reason. Um, so that's the that's the the character that baptism gives us. We also spoke about a sacramental grace, a special term that the church uses to signify that grace that is specific to the to the sacrament in question. And in the case of of a baptism, what is going to be that special grace that we receive? Well, it's going to be the grace to live as a child of God, as a friend of our Lord Jesus Christ, um, a brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, we might say. So to 
spend one's whole life doing the things like Christ did and therefore pleasing to his father. You remember Christ says, I do always the things that please him. Well, that's the sacramental grace of baptism to, to, to give us this ability to do always the things that please our father who was made our father, we might say, by this very sacrament. Um, it's sometimes difficult to express the sacramental grace because it's such a, it's a mystery, but it's also mm-hmm. such a, such a profound thing and such a, a powerful thing that it, it, it seems to have, you know, it seems to extend to so many things. And I, I right. might mention there just in passing as a little, a little spiritual nugget here, um, if I can call it that, um, Saints have spent their whole life contemplating the sacramental grace of one sacrament. And my my example here is is Elizabeth of the Trinity, certainly a, a saintly soul. She spent her whole life contemplating the the grace of baptism. And that grace of baptism was to make us children of God, but more specifically, these temples of the Holy Ghost, temples of God. So by that grace in our soul, as Christ said, right, we have the whole Trinity dwelling within us. And he said, if you, uh, if you love me, right, my father and I will come, we will make our abode in you. We will, we will dwell inside your soul. So Elizabeth of the Trinity, for example, she spent her whole life just thinking about that one thing, that one sacramental grace, uh, wow. of baptism. And it, it's, it, that's the power of these sacraments that they, they give uh, a whole life of sanctity. They can, if, if we let them, you know? Sure. So that's, that's our little, um, summary, not so summary of the, we might say the catechism of, uh, of what baptism is, what, what effects, um, it, it gives. And, that maybe brings us now, we've got to talk about the traditional rite of baptism. So I think that's important to see how it is that the church um, uh, signifies, shows us all of these things in her, um, the rite that she has, has used to surround the sacrament itself. Okay. So maybe we can, we can go to the, in that direction now. Sure. So, so when we're looking at the rite of the baptism in the traditional rite, um, there are two distinct uh, formulas, I guess. There's one for the infant and then one for the adult. Is that yes. correct? Yes, that's it. And um, that's actually that's actually a good point. I may, maybe want to say one thing before that because it's a bit more general. I, I forgot to say it a minute ago, but we can add it here. Just that um, when we speak about the rite of any sacrament, we speak about all of the ceremonies and um, other actions that the church says you must do when you are giving a sacrament. So okay. as we saw, the sacrament of baptism itself is, is the washing with the water, with the words. And um, that's it, right? That's the sacrament. Right. But then the church says, if you're going to baptize somebody, you have to do all of these other things too, all of these right. other actions, all of these other ceremonies. And well, why does she do that? Well, First of all, because those ceremonies are sacramentals, they are also going to be a kind of vehicle of grace for the soul being baptized and those attending the baptism. But also she's trying to instruct us. She's trying to teach us. And you know that phrase, we'll use it 
many times during this series, I'm sure, lex orandi, lex credendi. The the law of praying is the law of believing. And the church knows that. So she says, you must pray this way. You must say these things when you're going to give a sacrament, this sacrament. And because we believe these things, because this is what you are doing. And so she instructs us by that. And I might add another reason, though, that the church surrounds the sacrament itself with a rite, and that is that she she has the faith. She, she knows what this sacrament is doing, and she knows that the sacrament is holy. She knows that the sacrament was given by our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's like with a, with a gem, you know, if you have a diamond that somebody gives you, you don't just have the rough diamond or the diamond right. itself and you just show everybody here's the diamond you you put it in a setting like in a in a ring or or whatever it is a bracelet sure. and you surround it because it's something sacred it's something precious and the church knows that and so she surrounds the sacrament with this beautiful rite to to show the reverence we have to have towards it and i i'm taking the time there to <laughs> to to beat that dead horse because um this is the probably one of the one of the saddest things we see when we look at the Novus Ordo sacraments um the 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 new rite sacraments is they seem to have kept the diamond but they've they've ripped it out of their setting and now mm-hmm. there's there's not this this sense of reverence anymore the sense of that this is something sacred. This is something God himself has handed to you and said, you take this, you keep this, you use this for the salvation of souls for my glory. Well, that's something we have to, we have to really respect. And I think the disrespect shown to the sacraments sometimes in, um, in these, in these, um, in the Novus Ordo rites is, is just, it's well it's it's saddening really saddening right. so we'll we'll see that with baptism but maybe with other sacraments too sure. but let's let's talk now about as you said there are kind of um two rites here um that the church gives in her ritual um that's the book that contains the instruction about how to do the sacraments and the rites surrounding them and they're actually very similar. If you're receiving um, an infant to be baptized, or you're receiving an adult, they're they're very similar rites. There are going to be some interesting differences in the adult baptism, and I want to because they're so similar. And just for the sake of time and simplicity, we're going to focus on infant baptism because that's kind of it's going to give us the clearest view of it. And I might mention as we go a couple of differences in the adult baptismal rite. The adult baptismal rite is absolutely amazing as well. So I don't want to downgrade that, but um, we we don't have time for a full course. And and it's very clear what the church is doing in the infant baptism. So maybe we'll talk just about that for now. Okay. Um, So when we talk about the the baptismal rite... um, I want to mention something right away that is very striking. And that is that the church has the priest and the, the infant to be baptized um, in, the, in the arms, obviously, of the godmother, uh, have uh, three different locations 
for the rite. So the the rite of baptism is going to take place in um, in three parts, and each of those parts corresponds to a place in or outside of the church or with respect to the baptismal font. And it's very striking because it's kind of the only sacrament in which there is this very specific movement from one place to another. There's obviously mm. movement in the other sacraments, but right. you get it so clearly in baptism. And right away, the church is teaching us what's happening in this sacrament. She says, you have to start outside the church. So you've got to bring this baby to the vestibule, right? Or even outside the door of the church if you don't have a vestibule, but not inside the chapel, not inside the church itself. You have to be outside. Why? Because the child is an enemy of God. The church is not his place. He, he does not belong there. He cannot enter there. And that's... Um, that's so, it should be a little bit shocking, you know? Right. It's like, he's just a, an innocent baby. It's a cute <laughs> baby, you know? I mean, what's right. the problem? It is a poor baby, right? Right. But no, the church says, out, out of the church. You are, you are an enemy of God. And that's because she believes in original sin. And she knows that that child has on his soul original sin that makes him belong not to the kingdom of God, but under Satan, the kingdom of Satan. So the child, we might say, is is belonging more to the devil than to God, almost. We could say it that way. And that's a, that's a shocking thing, but it's very clear in the rite of baptism that that's what the church thinks. And I might note, we're talking about an infant. We're talking about a baby here. With an adult, it's going to be the same thing. You have to start outside the church. Uh, you are not yet able to come into the church. That's the first location. There are going to be some prayers, some ceremonies that we'll talk briefly about. And then the priest has got to bring the baby inside the church. And it says in the rite, you have to lead the child into the church. You, you use a um, one side of the stole. The priest uses one side of the stole to place on the head of the child as he leads the child inside the church. And now at the next place, you are at the entrance of the church. More things are going to happen there. And then you're going to go to the third location. You're going to, again, lead the child in some way to the to the baptistry, to the font itself. And that's where the baptism itself, the pouring of the water, will take place. So by these three locations, the church is signifying very clearly what's going on in this ceremony of baptism. We are going from being an enemy of God, part of the kingdom of Satan, to being now part of the kingdom of God, in the friendship with God, in the sanctuary, not the sanctuary we might say, but in the baptistry, in the inside the church itself, um, where, as we know, Christ is present uh, in the Eucharist. So that's just right away, we, we need to note that, that it, it's uh, the church is saying that very clearly. Um, I don't want to go through every detail of the rite here. I'm rather going to highlight a few different things, uh, maybe a little bit with a view to the changes that are going to happen. So we'll talk about that in the next episode, but especially with regard to the church showing us clearly uh, what is happening in this baptism. And okay. so the first thing I want to mention there is that in each place, um, so outside the church, inside the church, and at the font, there is a questioning that happens. 
So the priest has to ask questions and get a response. And if we're talking about an infant, so can't speak for himself, obviously, who is going to give answers? It's going to be the godparents. And But it's very important to note that the church says the priest is asking the candidate. So these questions are directed to the baby. <laughs> and it, it's it's just, it's marvelous, really. Um, St. Thomas will explain that the infant needs baptism because he needs to become a friend of God. Otherwise, he can't be saved. He's, he's outside of the kingdom of God before he is baptized. And so in order to receive this baptism, normally the child would have to have the intention, would have to want it in some way. But St. Thomas says, well, that's not the way it is with babies. Babies are always um, cared for by someone else. Someone else feeds them. Someone else takes care of giving them a place to sleep and all these things that are necessary for their natural life. And it's the same in the supernatural life. Someone else takes care of the baby. And St. Thomas will actually say, therefore, it's the parents who present the child, the godparents who speak for the child. But ultimately, St. Thomas will say, it's the faith of the church that supplies, the intention of the church that presents this child for the baptism. And that's such a beautiful um, image, we might say, the church, the mother church, taking care of her own, what is to be her her children, marked out, set aside for her, right? For for her, um, for the mystical body. So there's a questioning. In each place, the priest asks questions of the infant. And uh, we might say the church um, uses the mouth of the godparents to respond on behalf of the child. And the first questioning is going to be basically, why are you here? You know, what, what do you want? We're at the entrance door of the church. And those first questions, um, very striking. Uh, what do you ask of the church of God? And the answer, faith. Remember St. Thomas, it's how do we come into contact with the passion? Faith and the sacraments of faith. And then what does faith give you? Eternal life, right? So what are we going for here? Life, the new life that's going to be the eternal life. So that's the first questioning. Then inside the church, finally, there's going to be another questioning. And now it's uh, the questioning of renouncing Satan. So we've entered the church. Now you have to leave behind the kingdom of Satan. So the questions are going to be, do you renounce Satan? And these are the questions we remember because we renew our baptismal vows each year at, at the Easter Vigil. We answer right. these questions again, right? Do you renounce Satan and all his works and all his pomps and so on? So that's the second questioning. The final questioning will happen at the font right before the baptism itself. And that's going to be the belief in God, the belief in, in Jesus Christ and the church, so the faith. So do you believe in God? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? And so on. And then finally, uh, directly to the child, right? So imagine the child's name is John or something. John, do you want to be baptized? Do you wish to be baptized? And again, the church lending, um, let's say boring, I should say, the, the mouth of the godparent says yes, right? I This is in the parents, the godparents present the child, the child wants the baptism for his salvation. So we get those three questionings that happen. One, two, three. Um, the other thing I want to point out is very striking in the traditional rite is the 
exorcisms. So this is uh, what everybody remembers also, I think. Um, there are a few times where the priest directly addresses the devil. So he speaks to Satan and he tells the devil, you get out. And right from the beginning that happens, um, right after the first questioning, you know, what do you ask? What do you seek of the church of God, faith, and so on? The first thing the priest does to the child is he he breathes on the face of the child, um, that breath always representing the spirit of God. And he says, you know, exi ab eo. So get out, I'm paraphrasing, get out of this one, you know, you devil, right? It's uh, Satan, get out. And he's going to say that actually two more times to the devil in the course of the rite. So there's a th there are three exorcism prayers with the, the infant baptism. Actually, there's a fourth if you include the priest exercising and blessing the salt that's part of mm -hmm. the rite of baptism. So he exercises the salt as well. But directly to the devil um, who's let's say, has this child under his power, he says, get out three times. And they're very strong prayers. I, I really encourage the faithful to go look up the traditional rite, read the prayers um, in English. They're always said in Latin, but read them in English. And they, they're very strong. They're things along the lines of um, the priest will make the sign of the cross on the head of the child. And then he tells the devil, you don't ever dare, don't ever dare to violate this sign of the cross. Don't come near this child. Don't touch him, right? And it's a, it's a very, um, it's just, it's moving, you know, it's powerful. Yeah. When the priest says those prayers, I, I've done it many times myself, many, all of us have done it. Um, you, you have to, you, you're thinking to yourself, I'm, I'm commanding this angel that has fallen to, to go away and never to come back. Just be gone. Don't touch this one. Don't try to tempt him. Don't try to do anything. It's a, it's a very powerful prayer. And we say that as the priest, we say in the name of Christ, you know, and, and so it, the, the prayer has that power. So that's a very striking thing. Those, they're going to be those three exorcism prayers. The other thing I want to mention is the other rites of symbolism. So you mentioned the salt, the priest will um, give a little bit of salt into the mouth of the infant. And that is that representation of the, of the infant. We're giving to this child through the baptism, this ability to discern, to taste, to, to have a taste for the things of God. And that, I, I can't let this slip by, even though it's going to, it's going to be a little bit of a tangent, but the word uh, for wisdom in Latin is sapientia, it comes from the Latin word sapere, which means to taste. And so there's a there's an intimate link between wisdom, knowing, uh, having the wisdom of God and knowing the things of God and being able to taste. And so we say, for example, taste and see that the Lord is sweet, right? Remember that from the, from the, um, from the Psalms. And um, that's what this, the priest is doing there. He gives the salt and he says, give this child the ability to, to taste the things of God. So to live this life of a child of God, then he'll also, um, uh, he'll also touch the, the ears of the child, the nostrils of the child. And he'll say that, that word that Christ said, Ephefta. So be opened, right? Opening the ears of the child so that he can hear the, the faith so they can learn the faith, opening the, the, 
the the smell of the child so that again he can smell the the sweet savor of the incense that's offered to God and so on and so forth. So all this very um, symbolic, right? Very much a sign for these. We want this child to be able to live as a child of God. And that's that's what the church is symbolizing there. Um, we might mention also then there are uh, some anointings with the oils. So an anointing with the oils of catechumens, an anointing with the, the chrism, the oil of the chrism. These oils are consecrated by the bishop each year um, on Holy Thursday at the very special chrismal mass. Uh, therefore, all of the prayers that the bishop offers there, they they imbue these oils, we might say, with a kind of power. And the priest is, excuse me, is using those here, again, to symbolize what's going on. Oil was um, had a lot of symbolism in the Old Testament. One of the symbolism, uh, one of the signs that it was of was um, of this fight or a struggle because um, the wrestlers used to anoint their body with oil before they would go into the match, into the wrestling. And that's actually, that, that symbolism is there in the baptismal rite. We anoint the child so that he can then go into the combat, but now on the side of God. Uh, again, St. Paul says, right, our our um, our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against these these powers of the this these um, the devils and and all this in a spiritual way. It's a spiritual fight, and so that's the symbolism of the the oil there. In, the, in, the, in the Old Testament, Father, in yeah. the Old Testament, the oil was often used to anoint kings as well. Is yes, that, that's not yes. in baptism though. That symbolism is more in holy orders. Well, actually, it's funny because the there is the anointing with a chrism uh, and on the crown of the, on the head of the child. So that in the third part of baptism there, I was I was going to mention that that um, the the chrism used for kings, I think, is, is a different thing. You can see that symbolism here to a certain extent, because we say Christ is priest, prophet and king. We are made like to Christ, so we are made like to him, his priesthood, even in, in a sense, his prophet, his prophecy in the sense of praising God, and then his kingship in the sense of we are, by serving him, we will reign with him, right? So okay. that symbolism can be there as well. But the priest specifically says there that, you know, I anoint you um, chrismate salutis, with the chrism of salvation. And so it's actually, that's done immediately after the baptism, and it's representing that this child is now a temple of the Holy Ghost. Now uh, um, has in his soul this whole trinity, right? So he is, he is, the chrism is used for all those different consecrations of the church, the altar, whatever, all those different things. And it is, is really in, in that sense, I think, that this, uh, the child is anointed to symbolize what the child is now. Okay. Um, so yes, that, that is a very striking uh, moment also in the baptismal ceremony. So all throughout, we, we get... I hope it's clear because we we don't have tons of time to go into every aspect of this, but um, we're getting the sense that baptism is is um, a new life. It's giving a new life. Um, the baptism itself um, shows that as a sign of that. The washing with the water, uh, again, being buried with Christ, rising with him, but also all of this other symbolism that we are 
We are removing the child from the kingdom of Satan, which is all of the sin that is there, all of the debt that he owes. All of that is getting wiped away. The child is being brought now into the church, is going to be himself a temple of God, is going to himself be able to be a true adorer of God. So that's the whole symbolism of baptism is this, is this movement and this battle, this fight that's going on between the devil who's trying to claim the child for his own and the church using the power of Christ to say, this child is, is Christ's now, no longer yours. You, wow. you no longer have any power here. So that's really a kind of um, summary, I would say, of the baptismal rite. We, we might mention just in passing, um, one addition in the adult uh, baptism is that there is, um, in addition to the other, a few other exorcism prayers, there is a sort of solemn triple exorcism that takes place and that the candidate is meant to be, um, he's, he's, it's very striking. He's meant to come in there. Um, again, it's, it takes place at the entrance of the church. He has to kneel down. He has to say the, our father His um, godparent or sponsor has to make the sign of the cross on him. The priest makes the sign of the cross on him, then says a prayer, then says an exorcism, kicking out the devil. And then the whole thing is done again. So he stands up, he has to kneel down, he has to say the Our Father again, again the sign of the cross, again the sign of the cross, again a prayer, a different prayer, a different exorcism. Then he stands up, then again he has to kneel down, again he has to say the Our Father. And this is this is so striking because this is, uh, being an adult, right, he was um, perhaps for... Uh, really an enemy of God personally as well, not just with original sin, but he personally offended God. So now right. he has to, he has to be wrenched away from the power of the devil. And maybe the last thing I'll say there is um, about both, both uh, infant baptism and adult baptism is pay attention the next time you attend a baptism, or if you read the rite about how many signs of the cross there are, how many right. times the priest is making that sign of the cross that gives us a direct link back to the passion of Christ. It's by the power of the passion and through contact with the passion and death of our Lord that we are saved, period. And the church makes that eminently clear with the number of signs of the cross that are happening and with the way the priest speaks about the sign of the cross, that it it is the passion of Christ that's going on there. So that's kind of wow. our um, that's kind of our summary of, of the traditional baptism. I uh, I wish we could go into more detail, but we're sort of limited. And um, as I said, it's a, well, when you go to a traditional baptism, hopefully the priest explains also a bit more some of the symbolism um, yes. that can be a way to enter into more this, uh, what the church is doing there. That's fascinating. Um, I did have a question. I mean, it's a little bit tangential. Yeah, um, Definitely. In some churches, especially Europe, big cathedrals, the baptistry is on the outside of the church, sometimes even another building. Yes. Um, is that that same concept where this is happening outside the church, you you can't enter in yet? Yes. So it's it's true that the um, uh, there there are, let's say, there's, I don't know personally all of the history there. And so I'm not going to be able to give you a complete answer. I, I wish I could, but at least we would say, um, baptism being the doorway to the rest of the sacraments, there was a certain fittingness in having the baptistry as a separate location for two reasons, I would say. One, because of the sacredness of 
what goes on there. And mm-hmm. so they wanted to consecrate a special place that it would happen. Um, often the artwork brings you all the way back to the baptism of Christ, which is the institution of the sacrament, and so on and so forth. The baptistry itself is very, or, uh, sorry, the font itself is very ornate, uh, sometimes very large. Um, so they want to have it be a very sacred thing by consecrating a special place for it. But also, as I said, it's the doorway of the sacrament. So the church is the place of the mass. That's where the altar is. That's where the sacrifice happens. This baptism is not happening in the context of a mass. Why? Because you have to be baptized first. Then you're going to go to mass. And the symbolism on the Easter vigil is very good that way because you're, um, all of the all of the things happen preparatory to the baptism itself, um, the Easter fire, the blessing of the baptismal wa- Paschal candle, the blessing of the baptismal water, then the baptism itself, and only after that does the mass start, and right. then the newly baptized can attend his first mass. But you see that the mass and the baptism are not the same thing, and so there too, I think the baptistry is separated from the church because separated from the altar and the place of sacrifice. Often we have now them just for space considerations and because that's the way the churches are built. The baptistry is usually in the back of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's there's still a separation, we might say, with the altar, but it's it's the doorway to it. So I think there's right. that symbolism. I wish I had the history better. I could give you more, uh, more information oh, there, but... Yeah, There's no, it's, definitely it's some things to say the there. Florence Cathedral, Pisa Cathedral, all those grand cathedrals yes. have that separate building. Yes. They look very similar to the church, but it's yes. set apart. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And actually, one thing I, re- I remember is that um, in the in the early times, it used to be so the an adult uh, converting would be baptized. And then after baptism, he would actually go into another separate location that was a, a little chapel where the bishop would confirm him. And mm-hmm. so the confirmation was, uh, maybe that's a little good um, segue into the confirmation talks eventually, but right. um, the confirmation was seen as the completion of the baptism for those uh, uh, adult converts. Um, and that was done in a special chapel dedicated to confirmation as well. So you see the, you see the idea there of the church setting aside certain places where the sacraments happen. Very interesting. Well, Father, this has been great. Thank you so much. And, and again, many of us, probably many of the people watching know a lot of some of this stuff, but it's good to put it all together. And for my part, I always forget, you know, you think about baptism being, well, it takes away sin and it yes. gives you sanctifying right. grace, but all of those exorcisms, all of those rich yes. nuggets, that's a terrible word, but you know, yeah, that's okay. Of, I used it earlier. I was, <laughs> it's my fault for bringing it up. I couldn't think um, of a word. Yeah, but all of those all of those pieces, the the symbolism there is just it's beautiful and it's striking. So thank you yes. for, for putting it all together in one yes, spot for welcome. us. Yep. That's great. Well we'll see you next week then to talk about the new rite of baptism and we'll yes. be able to compare and contrast a little bit. Exactly. Yep. All right, very good. Father, thank you so much. All right, you're welcome, Andrew. Thank you.